Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we'll hear from Drs. Arturo Casadevall and Nigel Panth. Dr. Casadevall is the chair of the Molecular, Microbiology, and Immunology Department at John Hopkins University. And Dr. Panth is a professor of epidemiology, biostatistics, and pediatrics at Michigan State University. Today, they will discuss their recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, in which they explore why it is often so hard for scientists to reach consensus about COVID-19. Let's listen in. Okay, everybody, welcome to our first evening No Labels call. We're delighted tonight to have Arturo Casadevall and Dr. Nigel Penneth. You've read their impressive biographies and the Wall Street op-ed. They'll each talk for five or 10 minutes. And since Nigel has to leave in 30 minutes, we'll let him start off. Nigel, the floor is all yours. Thank you very much, Oscar. And thank you for uh, opening the door to us to talk to uh, this distinguished group. Uh, the, the topic is the editorial uh, op-ed that Arturo and I uh, put into the Wall Street Journal which addressed the sometimes contentious issues of exactly what level of evidence constitutes sufficient evidence to make a policy decision. And the way we've, and and really we dealt with two ideas and this was really Arturo's uh, concept. One is what are the standards for evidence within medicine? And two, how do they apply in the particular case of convalescent plasma, which we were addressing? So because of the time, uh, I'm going to speak a little bit about the conceptual framework, and Arturo will talk about the specific issues. So um, the first thing I'd like to say is the scientific method has two great subsets to it. Uh, I would say observation and experiment. And I, by training, I'm a clinician, pediatrician, as it turns out, and an epidemiologist. And we epidemiologists largely work with observational data, not entirely, we do do trials, but largely our data comes from observations made in the general population. And uh, observations are great, and a lot of the things we do are simply based on observational data. I would doubt that there are very many smokers in this virtual audience, and uh, no experiment was ever shown that led people to, uh, that showed that smoking was bad for you. It was entirely based on observations of this health status of smokers and non-smokers and the uh, observations were very consistent. Uh, They kept being uh, shown, they were very strong. For example, the relative risk of having lung cancer in a heavy smoker is about 20 fold that of a non-smoker. And eventually after a lot of time, it became apparent that people accepted the idea that smoking is a causal factor in lung cancer without any experiment having been done to demonstrate that principle. Now, when we turn to the medical care, however, we are very suspicious of observation alone to establish the value of medical care or any particular form of medical care. For example, uh, and for many different reasons, physicians who treat tend to imagine that they enlarge their experiences. They tend to say, I took care of that patient and I use that medicine, it's much better. I, took care of this other patient and I didn't, that medicine didn't work so well. These single events sometimes get magnified in people's minds as clinicians. We used to say, 
in medical school, we'd say if a doctor's seen one instance of something, he says, in my experience, and if he sees two instances of some disease, he says, in my extensive experience, and if he's seen three, he says, in case after case after case. So the experience of doctors is not an actually a very good guide to treatment. And so eventually, after many years of experience and missteps, we learned in medicine that the best way to evaluate a treatment is through the randomized controlled trial. And that's been now incorporated into law. The FDA now requires that any new intervention or drug or procedure or biologic agent has to be shown before it can be licensed to be effective in a large, well-controlled, randomized controlled trial in which there are a sufficient number of patients, a sufficient number of outcomes to study. We call these phase three trials. So that's all very good, all to the good. But what do you do in the middle of an epidemic? In the middle of an epidemic, we don't actually have as much of a luxury to sit down and plan our trials and get our people together. Trials can take years to complete, but in the middle of an epidemic, how are we gonna show that, for example, convalescent plasma works? And that, to be frank, is the dilemma uh, we're in right now. And uh, I think I can, without further discussion, turn it over to Arturo to elaborate on where we went with this problem in thinking about convalescent plasma. Thank you, Nigel. So uh, I will begin with some headlines from uh, about a month ago. Uh, let me tell you, blood plasma looked like promising COVID-9 treatment, then Trump got involved. Trump press for plasma therapy, officials worry, is an unvetted vaccine next. And uh, I cons whenever you see the word plasma on the news, I'm usually having a bad day. Uh, generally, that means that I'm getting a lot of reporters asking me to say things that I don't want to say or, or whatever it is. So I approached Nigel and we realized that what needed to happen is we needed to write something. And this is the editorial that got us invited to talk to you. Uh, the FDA says it's likely effective. The NIH urges caution. The answer is get more data for trials. So I'd like to just briefly tell you how we got here. So uh, the story goes back to uh, back in January. I'm a big student of history. History has greatly influenced my life. So I'm into history. And I'm into history of medicine. And I knew that plasma had been used for many epidemics in the past. So as uh, January comes, I knew that this is no longer containable. In fact, uh, I warned our president of a lot of what would happen. Not our president, school president, university president. But the, what I worry about is that nobody's talking about antibody-based therapies of plasma. How do I get the word out? And I decide that the way to do it is to try to write an op-ed. Look, I'm, a, I'm an editor of a medical journal, deputy editor of another one. I could have put it in a medical journal, but the bottom line is you need to get a reaction. So we, I tried the Washington Post. I tried the New York Times, Bloomberg News. Nobody wants it. But like everything in life, everything is luck. So I send it to the Wall Street Journal when the stock market is crashing at the end of February and they take it. And what it, it talks about, I decided to look at something in 1934 to, to try to make the case. So what you had is this school physician stop an outbreak of measles at this school in, in Potsdam, Pennsylvania that is still there by taking the blood from a boy who recovered and giving 10 milliliters to those who were not susceptible. So it's a dramatic case of what you can do if you have 
convalescent plasma or convalescent serum. Serum is the old term, plasma is the new term. And then what I did with this thing is I sent it to all my friends, including Nigel. One of my friends, Michael Joyner, this is the email back and forth, was in a hotel room in Atlanta when he got this. He never heard of a plasma for infectious disease, but he rapidly activated the Mayo Clinic and that will have profound consequences on how this will all play out. So with Nigel, we created the National COVID Plasma Project. And look, this is the best you can do in this country. No other country did this. Uh, this is physicians, scientists are coming together on their free association to try to do something. There was no drug company, there was no government. We all got together and we began to work on this. And then in March, things moved very fast. Here is the Wall Street Journal of Ed. All my <laughs> friends, Hopkin organizes, we create the Convalescent Plasma Project. Nigel is one of the founders. And within three weeks, the FDA allows compassionate use. And then on March 27th, it's first use. Now, there is no money. Fortunately, Bloomberg Philanthropy stepped in and gave us some money. And some of the companies begin to give us money uh, to try to help to get things going. And we use that to set up clinical trials. So, but in behind the scenes, this is what's happening. Uh, I had my 15 minutes of fame. What happened is, uh, here is somebody talking about something you could do in the epidemic. Everybody wants to talk to me. Uh, and as the more I talk on television, the more the FDA receives overwhelming numbers of requests for plasma use. What, what that means is that every hospital in the country is writing to the FDA and they can't handle the, everything. So what they do is they create what is known as the extended access protocol, which is a contract. And by then, Mike Joyner had gotten the Mayo Clinic activated and they apply for it and they get it. And this is the what will be known as the EAP, the extended access protocol. It's nothing more than a big contract to keep track of all the things that are going on. Then the unexpected happens. The FDA expected maybe a thousand people to get plasma. Well, now tens of thousands of people have been treated. Most of the usage is occurring around outside randomized clinical trials. You have donations campaigns start up, in particular, the Orthodox Jewish community in New York provides tremendous numbers of donors who then supply the country with plasma in a wonderful story that has been told in several newspapers. The usage is driven by physicians who embraced it. But then again, as soon as anything begins to be large, you begin to get criticism. How could the FDA be allowing the use of all this plasma without safety and efficacy data? And then the question became, can the Mayo Clinic EAP database provides answers to safety and questions? So this is what everybody wanted to know. Is it safe and does it work? Well, it's possible to answer the first question pretty easily. Is it safe? Because thousands of these patients are treated. We know a lot about the use of plasma and you could look at what's the rate of complications compared to what we know. Remember, plasma is used in tens of thousands of people every year. The only difference between convalescent plasma and regular plasma is that it's coming from people who recovered. So the first paper in May basically states in the first 5,000 that it's safe, and then with the next 20,000 that it's as safe as plasma. Now we are up to 100,000, and you can continue to say it's as safe as plasma. So the question is, is it working? As Nigel laid out, we have all kinds of evidence, ranging from randomized clinical trials to the AP analysis. So let's take a look at some of this report. The FDA says 
Can you look at this enormous database? Remember that everybody in the database is treated. There are not gonna be a negative control, but can you find a signal of efficacy? Well, uh, months go by, many statisticians worked on it, the Mayo Clinic, the FDA, and two signals of efficacy emerge. If you give it early, mortality is much lower than if you give it after day four. That is consistent with everything we know about antibody therapies. But the very strong signal that emerges is what we call in science a dose response. The more you give, the lower the mortality. People given uh, the highest units of plasma have about a 35 lower percent mortality than the one given unit. So two important pieces of data. And then Israel reports pretty much the same result, which is confirmed. Hospitals begin to respond their, their experience. So these are not controlled trials. These are observational studies. Remember, this is the New York, March and April. Lots of patients are getting plasma. Is it working? Well, one way to know is to compare it to patients who don't get plasma. Not randomized, controlled, or blinded, but still provides a control. And the red lines here, you can see in the blue lines, the red lines is plasma, the blue lines are controls, and the different controls, plasma is reducing mortality. Houston Methodist reports the same thing. 316 patients, plasma given within 72 hours. If you use high tidal plasma, look how the curves separate. Uh, these are the ones that matter at the top. And what it shows is if you give it early, the likelihood of death is lower than if you didn't use plasma. China reports the first randomized clinical trial. So here we're getting into the gold standard and the problems are already arising. China is able to get the trials going, but they run out of patients. Why? Because they control the epidemic. But they managed to get enough data to, to say that in severe disease, if you give plasma, one does better than doesn't. This is randomized and controlled. And certainly in very severe disease, there is uh, no benefit. Iraq uh, reports a randomized controlled trial, not blinded. Again, they got significance, but look at the problem is they have relatively few patients. And when you have few patients, you're always vulnerable to the low or small numbers. A single patient in one or the other groups could affect the outcome. So now we have five randomized controlled trials out there and they show you the problems. So China gets premature termination. They drop mortality, but it doesn't reach significance. They use it late. The Netherlands also drops mortality, but they also have to stop early and they use it late. The Spanish actually almost get to significance. They have zero death in the convalescent plasma treated group, and they show a statistically significant difference in progression to the ICU. That's good. If you don't progress to the ICU, you don't die. People die in the ICU, but Madrid controls the infection and they have uh, premature termination. I understand they have reopened this study because as you see in the news, Spain is surging again. India manages to complete the first randomized controlled trial, shows no efficacy, but they have a problem. The problem is a third of their unit have very little antibody or no antibody. So it's not gonna be conclusive or suggestive. Even with this problem, which is a huge ball and chain to drag, they show that antibody, the convalescent plasma reduces viral load, reduces FiO2 and reduces fever. And then the Iraqis got significance with very small numbers, and as I showed you. So the problems, you can see them here. The epidemic is changing. You set up a trial in New York in March and April, you have no patients in May and June. But you have a bigger problem, and that is that we are accruing information very rapidly. 
So if you set up a randomized controlled trial in June, it's obsolete by August because of all that we learned between June and August. The question is, are randomized controlled trials the right instrument for the middle of an epidemic? So uh, this is a meta-analysis of all the data that's out there. This is something that Nigel, Mike, and I continue to update. And what you can see is that if you put all the human experience together, it suggests that plasma is associated with a 57% reduction in mortality that reaches statistical significance. So this is my last slide. So in August 23rd, the FDA, with its regulatory authority, which for the, an EUA, that's the Emergency Use Authorization, which is actually a very low bar, it says you have to have reasonable safety and probable efficacy. I think I could convince this audience that we have reasonable safety and probable efficacy. But as you know, uh, this was announced in a Sunday night presidential news conference, and there were some errors uh, in the way it was presented, and it led to, um, in our very polarized era, a, a tremendous degree of controversy. So uh, people pitted the NIH. You can see the NIH, this is from the New York Times, FDA emergency approval now on hold. Uh, government, including Francis Collin and Fauci, urged caution last week, citing weak data from the country's largest plasma study. So I think what our point is, this is a controversy or, or a, a dispute about certainty. The FDA has its regulatory numbers. That is, they have reasonable safety and probable efficacy. The NIH, as a scientific organization, would like to get better data. They would like to get randomized controlled trials. So this entire controversy has one very good outcome. In science, in opposed to, to politics, in opposed to religions, we have a mechanism for conflict resolution. You can always get more data. And the NIH has now stepped in and put more than $40 million to complete the randomized controlled trials. And today we have randomized controlled trials in the UK, multiple in, 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 uh, in the United States. And we think that we will be able to get the certainty uh, that is needed. And with that, I'm happy to stop. And hopefully I gave you an overview. Um, thanks doctors. Uh, I'd ask a quick, quick question. And that is, you're, you're doing this randomized controlled trials. When will we get the answer? When will okay, we know? That's a very good question. So at Hopkins, we have two randomized controlled trials in the outpatient space. So these are very early used, okay? One of them is on for prophylaxis, and the other one is for people who are sick at home getting a unit of plasma. If you get a unit, does it change your outcome? The, the trials are enrolling. They're now, um, and it is expected that they will have sufficient power in about a month, a month and a half. All right. And then let's just assume that they're as successful as you hope. A silly question. Let's just say it's adopted nationwide. Where do you get the source of the convalescent plasma? This, we have no problem with, with convalescent plasma. The, the current recruitment has produced sufficient supply. Uh, there is su supply available today. Any hospital in the United States where you check in and they need plasma is needed, it's available. The problem, I will point out to you, the problem is that the controversy has driven down the use of plasma. Why? The, the controversy has, rip, has, has driven down the use of plasma. It was I'll just, I'll just add, add Arturo, we have a large group. So there's a very a number of groups of patients who are survivors who are very well organized and are strong advocates for the use of plasma. 
And we have individuals around the country who are really doing a wonderful job in energizing their local communities to get donors together to give plasma. So that's, that's a key source of, of plasma and also will turn out to be a key source of some of the other antibody preparations that are in the works, which we could talk about too if we have time. Right. Okay. Before I go to the questions from the, from the audience, as it were, my question is, if it's that good, and let's just say it's nationwide, is there enough convalescent plasma available if all the people who have COVID-19 take it? Yes. There will uh, be. One, one person who recovers can treat two to three people. So one person can, can help two to three people and donate again in two weeks. Right. Okay. So the numbers uh, that, are, are very much in favor of this. Right. Well, you're both on. Let, let me talk to Steve Zirkel, who has a question. Steve? Oh, good evening, Arturo and Nigel. Thanks so much for the article and the, uh, and the discussion tonight. I actually have two questions. The first one is you mentioned giving convalescent plasma within four days. What is the start date of that four days? So in, in, in that study, it's hospitalization. Hospitalization, it's, okay. It's an average because some people would have come to the hospital with 10 days of symptoms, and some people would have come with seven days of symptoms. But even the numbers are so large that even with that error, you still pick up the signal of efficacy in the first three days. Okay, the, 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 my second question is related to mad cow disease. So living in London during mad cow disease, I'm, I'm unable to give blood. Having recovered from COVID, can I give plasma? Uh, probably not. You know, I travel to Europe four or five times a year and they don't want my blood either. But remember, there is no evidence, right? Uh, at this time, it's, a, it's an abundance of caution. The transfusion industry is the most regulated and most careful of all parts of medicine. So given that we have all this choice of people, why put anybody at a, at a, at a minuscule risk? But I will tell you one more thing. The blood, the plasma is not pooled. So if there's a problem with one unit, it affects one person. It's not like you're going to put it all together and, and have a problem with 100 people. Yeah, it has to be remembered that blood banks are meticulous in their attempts to screen out evidence of infection in samples uh, that they, they derive. And many agents are tested for, and blood, blood that's donated is often removed from the viable pool to be used. Great. Thank Thanks. you, guys. Carla Odell, you're up. Excuse me, I think you've answered the second question I had, which was the availability of the plasma. The first is, what are the risks if we were to um, give it to people? So there's some, what are the risks-reward ratio? Actually, no risk. We've the safety signals we looked at. We looked for the two major complications of plasma transfusion, which one of which is volume overload. The other is, is a result of antibody interactions. And so we saw almost minuscule fewer than fractions of a percent of those. And so it's at least to say, we think, as the ordinary plasma that's given in hospitals approximately 5 million times a year in the United States. So the, sa the safety profile established has been established and the benefit is what the argument is around, but the benefit that we're seeing, we think is pretty substantial and pretty evident but will be, I think, we think confirmed when the large trials issue their results, we expect, as Arturo said, in a month or two. Thanks, Carla. Is that fine with you, Carla? Yes, thank you very much. David Epstein, you're up. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I was asking um, also about the, the distribution. 
Um, so is this all done at a local level? And uh, are, are there going to be basically as many as we need? And how long would that take to, to get that done? So the wonder about plasma is that it can be frozen for at least a year and up to 10 years. So generally, it's not so much, it can be generated at the local level. Uh, but in the United States, plasma has been moved from areas that is high supply to demand. The one thing that is very important is that even though here in the United States and in more resource areas, we may have access to better antibody-based therapies in the next year or so in the form of monoclonal antibodies like our president got, the rest of the world is not going to have monoclonals. The rest of the world is not going to have antivirals. But the rest of the world can make plasma, provided that they have recovered patients. So I think we feel a tremendous degree of duty to try to figure out how to make this thing work. Because if you can just put out the information, the rest of the world can use it. I should say that in practice, nearly all donation is local and used locally, but the options of transferring from one part of the country to another is, is still there. Thanks. Thank you. David, I just, I'm, I'm sorry. Could I just do a real quick follow-up? Um, sure. So how long is, um, do you have any idea how long we stay immune or how long the antibodies stay in our body? Um, when it's given as plasma instead of a vaccine? Yeah, we know, we know that the half-life of the main antibody is 20 days. So if you were to get a unit of plasma in 20 days, you have half of what you had. That's why we definitely think it's useful in prophylaxis and therapy. But, you know, one of the things we discern is that when people recover, they recover pretty quickly. They don't need the plasma after they recover. They make their own antibody. Yes, we should, we should emphasize this difference between what we call passive antibody therapy, of which convalescent plasma is one example. The uh, uh, treatment the president got with uh, monoclonal antibodies is another. We also have something called hyperimmune globulin, which is pooled plasma, concentrated down to the strong antibody concentrations. Those are all forms of passive immunity, and they produce temporary immunity. A vaccine, on the other hand, gives you active immunity and creates immunologic memory so that you can respond if you see the infection again. So I, I have a question with someone that I'd like to repeat. Would you expect a monoclonal antibody cocktail, which has an established dose of a specific antibodies to have a superior effect? <laughs> That's a so, so what I would say right now, I, I spent my entire life working on monoclonals, okay, is the best answer I can give you is I don't know. Uh, I not a priority. Um, the plasma has, when somebody recovers, they have a lot of very different types of antibodies. So they will hit the virus in many different ways. When you get a, co a cocktail of monoclonals, you're getting stuff that is very pure and very homogeneous, but it's hitting the virus in only a couple of places. So I think that remains to be seen. The one difference I can tell you is that a unit of plasma is $300 and a dose of monoclonal antibody is going to be five figures plus. Thanks. John Rothman? Also, the, just to add another little thing, the dose of antibody you get with a monoclonal seems to be quite a bit higher and opens up the possibilities, which we'll learn about from the trials that are ongoing now, if there might be side effects from that high dose. And uh, also, um, it's important to recognize that so far, monoclonals have yet to make a big impact in infectious diseases. They've been mostly used for cancer and autoimmune disorders. We only have two licensed monoclonals for infections. So it's, we're still in the earliest phases of learning what monoclonals do. John Rothman? 
Yes, I have a question is how are the antibody titers being quantitated? Is it IgG, IgM or both? So right now they're being quantitated primarily with one of the, as you know, they can be quantitated in many different ways. Uh, but generally they're focusing on IgG and they're focusing on high titer because it correlates with high neutralizing activity. However, we have carried out studies on plasma. And as you can imagine, some of these units have IgM, some of these units have IgA, every unit is different. So that's part of the regulatory hurdle that is uh, going on. Yes, can you hear me now, Oscar? Yes, John Rothman. Thank you. I was wondering if any of the effect that you're seeing with this uh, plasma might be metabolic. Um, I'm associated with a company working in the metabolic area, and we are finding that um, cells themselves, independent of the immune system, have the ability to fight off COVID. Do you know if, if there's any other actions that so, your plasma yeah. may be causing? So that's a very good question. Um, we consider that there could be other actions. One of them is plasma has coagulation factors. Plasma does carry cytokines. The issue is that we have a dose response relationship for IgG, which really implies that the active agent is IgG. Second, when you give a unit of plasma, it gets diluted by 40 folds to 50 fold on the body. So any other uh, component would probably be diluted. In other words, we don't have any evidence that anything else is active, but certainly we're scientists and we wouldn't rule it out. Well, let me, let me just share some, some of our information in the hopes that it's useful to you. Um, <coughs> we have found that, that cells actually make bile acids in response to viral infection, and that there is a literature to show that exogenous bile acids can stop the, uh, the co-opting of protein synthesis and lipid synthesis and reduce <laughs> viral um, replication. So you might want to look at bile acids as part of your mechanism of action. Well, thank you. Well, we had certainly not thought about that, but thank you. Pamela Humphrey, please. You're up. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Um, okay. Well, I think, I think you answered uh, the one of the questions I had, which was uh, any reactions so far that you have seen in some of these um, trials and you answered that question. But I was also wondering just as a, a support here for those of us who don't understand all the acronyms, um, if you could tell us what they mean. Which acronym? You mean like the EUA? Yeah, yeah, the EUAs and the- So that's a, a legal term, which means uh, emergency use authorization. What it means oh, is the yeah, FDA- that I, right. that I know, I think it was related to something else. Somewhere. <laughs> several other acronyms that, that you, uh, somebody just asked about, and I can't remember. What I think it's the type of the antibodies, IgG and IgA and IgM. Yeah, that's it, that's it. That's All it. right, so Pamela, those are different classes. Oh, okay. We have like different classes of antibody. The main one is IgG. Okay, thank and you. And by the way, they are known as IgM, IgE, because that's the way that were originally purified. Oh, okay, thank you, thanks. Maxine Clark? Yes, thank you. So when you uh, you get COVID, you might not have crazy symptoms. You might be sort of moderate symptoms, and you're not in the hospital. Can you just go to your doctor and get plasma? Do they have to be hospitalized? And how serious, if, if it's only if they want you to take it early in the process, how serious does it have to get before they would give you plasma? That's a very good question. Right now, plasma is approved for use in hospital. But you could get it as an outpatient as part of trials. There are two trials going on. There's the Hawking trials, 
where people are being treated at home. And the NIH has a trial in which people go to the emergency room sick. And if they're not sick enough to be admitted, they're offered to join a trial where they either get a unit of plasma or a placebo. So the answer is you cannot get it by demand, but you can at least join something that will give you a 50% chance. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, Barnes Jewish Hospital, great hospital. And if I had the, if I had COVID and I was in, admitted to the hospital, they would, uh, would I have to ask for it? Would they just offer it? What, what, was it up to my doctor? You know, you're hospitalized, your regular doctor isn't there. Normally it's a hospitalist. What, what goes on? So Maxine, my advice to you would be to, to, to ask for it. Simply, let me tell you why, because Right now, plasma use is dependent on the doctor's decision. And some places have totally embraced it. Other places are saying, I'm not gonna use it until I see a large randomized controlled trial. All, this has become politicized and, and some places, you know, are, are it's, so <laughs> don't get me started. What I would say is if I get sick and I go to a hospital, I'm gonna ask for plasma in the emergency room. And if they don't give it to me, I'm going to sign out AMA and go to some place who gives it to me. Thanks. Larry Hirschfield. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. It's very interesting. Is there any possibility of uh, isolating these antibodies so that you don't require donations of uh, human plasma to make the drug? Right. So there are, uh, as you know, monoclonal antibodies, Lily, Regeneron uh, are making them. But there is a big a push in the United States to isolate the antibodies from plasma. Those are known hyperimmune globulin. That is going on. It's not available yet, but it will be available in the next few months. The clinical trials of that have begun. The advantage of that is that there is a vial and there is a certain amount of antibody and at least it's homogeneous from vial to vial. Whereas when you get a unit of plasma, all we can tell you is that it's got antibody, but they are very different in, in composition. Nigel had to leave, so we'll go to Murray Levin. Okay, guys, listen, I'm drinking wine so so is the other doctors. So this is an evening dinner. Oh, <laughs> so I hope you haven't drank so much wine that you can't unmute yourself. Let's go to Howard Newman if Murray Levin's trying to figure out what to do. Thank you, Oscar. I don't know what kind of wine you <laughs> have. It's like looks like white sangria with that lemon in it. <laughs> so, this is very fascinating, and I apologize if you covered this early on, but is the concept of using convalescent technology more broadly applicable to other viruses or yes. other diseases? Yes. And this is, we talk, we're talking about something that's really old. This was used in 1918. Uh, it can be used. The, the thing is, the United States had no capacity on March 1st for doing any of this. And in the last six months, a tremendous amount of effort. So one of our hopes is that as, as we, we know, convalescent plasma will <coughs> always be a stopgap therapy between a time in which you have nothing to a time when you have better reagents. Well, for example, every year we lose 50,000 people to the flu. You could, you could generate convalescent plasma and use it against influenza. You could use it in many other ways. And one of our hopes is that out of this calamity comes more of that. And is it disease specific? Oh yeah. You would have to use it, you would have to use it for, the, for the disease you're dealing with. Thank you, very interesting. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question that is, it seems to be that you're repurposing uh, convalescent plasma for something else. Why, I, nothing against you people, but why haven't a, the drug companies spending billions of dollars in research, a huge problem with COVID-19, 
Why hasn't any drug company come up with something like this? Because this is not uh, what how they make their money. I mean, look, this entire effort, you know, you know who would have recognized this entire effort? They talk about the United States was the only country that mounted a grassroots effort to, to do plasma. It was done by physicians. It was not government. It was not done by companies. This is just not something that the pharmaceutical companies do. Uh, how are you going to patent it? Think about the issues involved. And yet it's a very pure therapy. People recover. They donate their stuff. Nobody makes any money. There are no patents. And, and currently, it's the only thing that we have that is associated with reduced mortality if you use it early. All right. Next one is William. Pardon me if I pronounce your last name wrong. William Strimel. Don't be embarrassed if I pronounced your name wrong, William. So a question for Arturo. If I understood you correctly, it seemed to you seem to suggest that the conflict was really becoming between the FDA and the NIH once the emergency use authorization came out. As the data comes out, and let's just hypothesize that there's there's continues to be good, strong data, do you sense there will still be a conflict between the FDA and the NIH over this? Look, I, I, I can tell you, this, I, I just tell you my personal experience. I work with the FDA every week since May. We had a conference call to analyze the data. I am enormously impressed with these people. The FDA, the, 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 these people were not pushed into it. The FDA was ready to make a declaration in June, two months before they did it. Nobody pushed them into it. They just wanted to keep checking the data. The NIH, Tony Fauci, Collins, these are friends of mine. Tony has supported my career all along. This is not a conflict. This is just a view on, on how to proceed of certainty. And what, what has made it terrible is that, that a conflict has been created where there was none of it, and it's been politicized. And it's, it's having real consequences on the front lines of physicians. How do, they look at it and say, oh my God, there is a conflict, this and that, maybe they shouldn't use it. They give me a break, you know? Uh, this, is, this is why I began by saying to you, whenever plasma is in the news, uh, I'm having a bad day. And I assure you, I have a career. I mean, I'm not invested in plasma. If the randomized control trials don't work, you know what, I'm a scientist and I say, well, they don't work, but so far we have to go with the data that we have. Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying this is the natural push and pull between the FDA and the NIH. Exactly, it's just this is completely, this yeah. did not have, the way that it was reported created an issue that is not a real issue. Understood, got it, okay, thanks. And, and I try to work with those reporters. You know, I try to work with them and, I, and, and you know, they created the problem. I mean, I spent hours talking to them about this. Last question. The last question is from Michelle Krauss. Then Charlie Dent can provide the closing words. Michelle? Hi, this is Michelle. A quick question. Where are you with Stanford? Because I'm on the West Coast at this point. Are they involved? Are they using it as a therapeutic? So I don't know. The West Coast activated very early in the crisis. Remember, California got hit early. So they right. set up clinical trials, but they ran into the Wuhan problem. They basically control the epidemic locally. So we, I don't know, uh, our, we, I don't recall having a, a direct connection. We have a multi-center trial. We're now funded by the Department of Defense to analyze all of this, but I don't think Stanford is one of them. But, okay. but, but if you get sick and you go to Stanford Hospital, believe me, they'll know about it. Now, I, I'm associated with a company that's out of Wuhan. And we're working on a various therapeutics as well as the PCR problem, the testing problem. So 
they I may reach out to you. Fair enough? Fair enough. They've got lots of funds, and that's part of the key. Thank you. Oh, wish you luck. Charlie? Yeah, well, thank you. And uh, Arturo and Nigel, thank you for this really fascinating conversation. And for me, it's actually quite real. As a recovered, <laughs> as a recovered uh, COVID-19 patient uh, who has given on two occasions uh, is his plasma. Uh, wow. This is uh, really interesting. I, I've donated twice. Uh, and, uh, and it was interesting. When I went to the blood bank, this is back in May, I was uh, uh, infected in March. And then uh, I, I first donated uh, my plasma in, uh, in May. And I, I wasn't getting quite clear answers from the blood bank about the efficacy of the plasma, but they nevertheless encouraged me to keep uh, donating. And so this conversation to me was actually very real and, uh, and answered a lot of questions. And uh, it's interesting to understand this uh, uh, debate, if you will, uh, or discussion between the NIH and the FDA just strikes me as kind of the normal order of business. Right. Uh, not something that we should uh, be overly uh, alarmed about or concerned about, but a, but a useful discussion. And so I guess what I've, I've taken out of this is that I would continue to encourage all my friends to, to donate uh, their plasma and uh, as soon as they can, because apparently, uh, and that's one thing I learned too, that the efficacy of this stuff is, uh, you're, I guess it's more uh, efficacious, I guess, uh, the sooner you're out of the, <laughs> out of the, uh, out of the illness. That's uh, right. That's and right, I, Charlie. And, and thank you. Thank you yeah. for donating and for sharing your experience. Uh, I, you're absolutely right. If one, God forbid, gets COVID, once you recover 28 days later, please donate. If you have high titer, it's going to go into a person who needs it. If you have low titer, it's going to go to a company where they will fractionate the blood and take out the antibody to make a gamma globulin. So no matter where you're at, you could help people either directly or as part of a communal effort. But the important thing yeah, is yeah. to need donors. And just in, the, in closing, I just wanted to say uh, my, my symptoms were comparatively mild, unpleasant, but comparatively mild. Uh, so uh, does that mean that my antibodies would be perhaps uh, a little less uh, uh, efficacious, perhaps, than somebody who was more severely ill? Or no, is that no, Charlie, the fact that you were sick, that's what matters. The, what we know right. is that the people who get through with minor symptoms, you know, they, they lose they lose uh, olfactory for a couple of days, those tend to make weak antibody responses. It's the ones who get sick and are symptomatic that tend to make very high antibody responses. So you probably, you donated, you probably help other people. Okay, By the way, well, if you donated twice, you help at least four. Well, great. Now, I have to probably go back again, not sure how much, uh, how much I have left in me in Perhaps, terms of yeah. but the, but thank you. But, but again, I wanted to thank you both, Arturo and Nigel, for a really uh, fascinating conversation. And the op-ed op in the uh, Wall Street Journal is also very, uh, very educational for me. And um, so I'm glad you were able to share your, uh, your, your research uh, with a, a broader audience of a lot of people on this call who are uh, obviously opinion leaders in their own circles. So thank you so much and appreciate uh, No Labels and the Problem Solvers for once again putting on a, a great panel uh, that... Uh, makes us all smarter once we're, once, we're, <laughs> once we're through with it. So thank you again. In their Wall Street Journal op-ed, the doctors asked two questions. What are the standards of evidence in medicine and how do they apply in the particular case of convalescent plasma from treating COVID-19? The gold standard in medical research is of course experimentation in double-blind clinical trials. But as the doctors argue, we should be more open to the benefits of medical care born of observation, especially as in the case of COVID where greater speed is needed to find treatments. 
Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.